0: Uh, By a show of hands, and seriously, I want you to participate in this, uh, how many of you have ever been or are still confused about the subject of baptism to a certain extent? Ever been in your life or like currently right now, you're a little confused about baptism? I don't believe any of you because I very much include myself in in that group. In fact, um, what's kind of interesting is I grew up going to church. Honestly, church has always been a part of my life. It it was so rare growing up that that me and my family would would ever miss a Sunday morning. I I witnessed plenty of baptisms growing up, baptism services in lakes and ponds and rivers and pools, all all these different bodies of water. And and still, despite all that, I got to admit that for most of my life, this subject of baptism was still... Still pretty confusing for me. And so I got to think that for in particular, those of you that are new to this whole church thing, perhaps there's a little bit of confusion on this subject of baptism as well. In fact, for, for most of my life, when I would hear the word baptism, I would think about baptism. This is the type of imagery that would come to mind. Now, keep in mind, I'm not making fun of this. This is just genuinely what would come to my mind. I would think of usually like an older guy, a pastor in a tank of water, still wearing his suit. Uh, the other person, you know, wearing, like, one of these white robes, and eventually he'd say a couple things. He'd dunk the person into the water. The other person would come out, and people would, like, politely golf clap that he had just been thrown into water, in and out of water. And I don't know, like, if this is, like, the practical side of my brain. The only thing I could think about is, like, why didn't they change out of their suits? Like, do they not own bathing suits? Like, like I don't understand why, why they made that so complicated. Maybe for some of you, because you grew up perhaps in a more traditional environment, You hear the word baptism and you perhaps immediately think of some old guy, you know, kind of standing over a baby that's kind of crying already. And and eventually at some point, like they, they drip some water over the baby, over his or her head, and then the baby only goes more and more berserk. Um, I, I got baptized when I was in middle school, and full disclosure, the only reason that I got baptized was because my older brother, Trevor, he had decided he was gonna go public with his faith, and, and like a young, younger brother, I kind of looked up to my older brother, and I thought, okay, if it's good enough for him, it's certainly good enough for me, and so that seems pretty cool. I wanna get baptized too, and so I went to my parents, and I said, hey, I wanna get baptized, and you know, they put me through the ringer. They wanted to make sure that I understand what I was doing, but little did they know that I'd been going to church my whole life. I knew those lines inside and out, even if I didn't even understand the words I was saying, they're like, all right, I guess it's time for him to get baptized, and my parents put together this really, like, great intimate service with family and friends. We went down to the lake that I grew up on, and my dad said a couple of words, and then I was the first one to get baptized, and you know, we walked out into the water, and he asked me that question, have you put your faith in Jesus as your Lord and Savior? I'm like, yes, and I was excited. I'm like, something good's going to happen right now, and, and he dunked me into the water, got a little water in my nose, and then he brought me back out, and nothing changed, like, like, as in nothing. I mean, like, the, the clouds didn't open up. Like, a dove did not come and descend on my shoulder. Literally nothing changed. In fact, the only thing that changed was that the women in my family, my mom and my grandma in particular, they were just really emotional. Like, they had started crying in that short amount of time that I went in the water and out. I, I wasn't emotional. I was just wet. And... I don't know, kind of excited to eat a hot dog and like drink a Coke. And so that's what I am going to try and do today, try to unravel the mysticism around baptism and show you how actually it's really, really simple. Human beings, though, unfortunately, throughout the years have made it to be something that is far more complicated than it was ever originally intended. Now the reason that I'm doing this is uh, today we are entering into part two of a series that we began last week titled "What's Next." We're in this series. We are challenging all of you, whether you're new to church, whether you've been at this church thing for your entire life, to come up with some sort of a game plan as it relates to your faith, as it relates to your spirituality, as you head into 2020. Because for most of us, and we probably wouldn't admit to it, but if we are vulnerable and honest. We probably don't have much of a plan when it comes to our faith. We we just kind of leave it to chance, or we hope that showing up here every once in a while that that somehow is gonna make things work, and I'm telling you, that's not wise, because if you just leave your spirituality to chance, like any other area of life, then what comes naturally to you will eventually just take over. And if you haven't figured this out already for yourself, you soon will, naturally, those natural impulses will almost exclusively take you in a direction that you are going to later regret. What comes naturally to you is ultimately not what is best for you. Naturally, when it comes to your faith, will only take you further and further and further away from God. And by virtue of the fact that you're even sitting here today, I think you're at least curious You're at least hoping that there's a God out there. And if there is a God out there, is there a way for you to draw close to him? Is there a way that you can actually have a relationship with him? One of the incredible promises that God gives us is that as you move closer to him, he will always move closer to you. As you take real tangible steps towards God, he is so faithful, he will always take those steps towards you. So so translation, you you owe it to yourself to at least take a real, a a tangible, a next step towards God. And and we feel that no matter where you find yourself in your faith journey, your next step is somewhere among the Grum Law 7. Now again, we are not nearly arrogant enough to try to convince you that we somehow invented these things. We are trying to, in fact, just make your spiritual plan really, really easy on you that the Grumla 7, just in case you need a recap, in case you weren't here last week, in case you just breezed by those banners and you've never actually read them as you passed through our lobby, are this right here, weekends, baptism, daily encounter, generosity, groups, serve, and share. And so over the seven weeks of this series, we're going to be exploring and talking about these seven disciplines and why you would be wise to implement one, two, eventually all of these things as a part of your life. Well, last week we talked about groups, uh, or as we call them around here, connect groups. If you weren't here last week, again, I'm begging you, begging you, begging you, please go to Grumlaw.com messages, either listen or watch the message there, or find us under Grumlaw Church, wherever it is that you happen to grab your podcast. Connect groups, again, I'm not just saying that to, to, to try to elicit you to sign up for a group. They really are the most important thing that we do around here. When, when you finally get out of these rows of Sunday mornings and you get into circles in people's living rooms. And the reason that's the case is because every single one of us, no matter how introverted you might be, we are all wired to be in community, to have real, human, intimate connection with other people. But even more than that, we all need to be in community. Because as we talked about last week, others can see what you can't. We need that community, which is shockingly difficult to find in adulthood, And if you don't have that community, if you don't have those people that that are in your life that are willing to have those difficult conversations, those hard love, love conversations, you'll continue to stack up regrets. You'll continue to stack up problems. You will continue to learn lessons the hard way. So seriously, if you weren't here last week, make sure you go and catch yourself up, or even better yet, as soon as this service is over, go out in the lobby, sign up for a connect group. I promise that you will not regret that. But today, as we head into part two, let's talk about this often confusing, somewhat mystical seven-letter word, again, that we refer to as baptism. Now, because every single person sitting here today uh, finds themselves at different points in this faith journey, and in in fact, uh, all of you probably have slightly different faith roots. Some of you, again, you grew up in more traditional churches. A a lot of you that are sitting here today, the the Catholic faith was very much a part of your past. Some of you, you grew up with an entirely different faith or religious system altogether. Some of you, again, this is brand new. You're just starting to explore. You could basically count on one hand the number of times that you've stepped through the doors of a church. So Some of you, you, you've gathered what you think you know about baptism from pop culture and, and from movies. And, and so in an effort to somehow cut through all of that and, and try to get us on the same page, I, I want to tell you all a story. And this isn't like some fictitious story. This is, in fact, a real story. And it centers around, and I'm not just saying this for hyperbole, but it centers around one of the most influential men in the history of the world. A, a, a guy that we simply today just refer to as Paul. But before we jump into the life of Paul, before he appears in our history pages, I actually want to take you back even a little bit farther, back to the year of 35 AD. And as you can see here, in 35 AD, something pretty significant happens. A guy by the name of Stephen is martyred. Stephen is one of the original followers of Jesus, and little did he know that he would become known as the very first person that would be murdered, that would be put to death for his faith in Jesus. Now, I think that for us, sitting here in 21st century America, this is a little bit difficult for us to totally get our heads around, because we live in such an accepting, such an embracing, such an open culture, where we just say, you can believe whatever you want to believe. But Christianity in the first century, to say the least, was not very popular, It wasn't like they were picking up steam. It wasn't like people in particular uh, right there around Jerusalem were all jumping on board with this new movement that we now refer to as Christianity. In fact, the Jewish people, which was the predominant religion in that area, they really didn't like Christianity. Even after the resurrection of Jesus, I mean, again, he pulled this off. This guy that predicted his death, predicted his resurrection, and then, boom, he actually rose from the dead. They still did not believe that Jesus was, like, actually the Son of God. There were a lot of different reasons as to why that was the case, but perhaps most notably, Jesus didn't exactly fit into their version, into their mold for what the Messiah was supposed to be. Jesus came down to earth to fulfill this role as a Messiah, and the Jewish people long had thought that he was going to be like this great war hero, And he was gonna step onto the earth and he was gonna be kicking butt and taking names and eventually the entire world would be taken over by the Jewish community, including the roving government and everybody would be like this unified group of people that all shared that Jewish faith. But that's not what Jesus was doing. In fact, Jesus was kind of doing the complete opposite. He talked a lot about loving your enemies and doing good to those who harm you. He was fulfilling more of this role of this suffering servant. Not to mention the fact that Jesus was constantly showing little to no respect to the Jewish leaders. Frequently challenging them for their religiosity, challenging them for their elitism. The very things that in fact drive you nuts about organized religion, those things drove Jesus nuts. And so rather than embracing Jesus, rather than seeing him as the fulfillment to all these prophets, to all these scriptures, they instead saw Christianity as a direct affront to Judaism. And most of the Jewish leaders back here in the first century were committed to making sure that Christianity did not make it out of the first century. And so here we have Stephen in 35 AD, and he's on the front lines going all over the place, spreading the name of Jesus, and he is doing a dang good job. Such a good job, in fact, that the Jewish leaders are taking notice. And they're shocked that despite repeated warnings, despite all these side conversations where they would pull him to the side and be like, you need to shut up. You need to stop talking about Jesus. He just would not be quiet. He kept talking about Jesus. And so eventually he's brought on trial in front of these Jewish leaders, and they do actually give him an opportunity to defend himself. And Stephen goes on to beautifully recount the history of Israel and the Jewish people with just such vivid detail, with breathtaking accuracy, showing and demonstrating to them, hey, I know my stuff. And then he gets right up to the present day where they recently murdered the very savior that they had been waiting for. And it's like Stephen gets to this point where he's just like, I can't handle it anymore. I don't even care like what they do to me. He starts popping off, he basically picks up right where Jesus had left off. He says, you stubborn people, you're heathen at heart and you're deaf to the truth. Must you forever resist the Holy Spirit? That's what your ancestors did and so do you. Name one prophet your ancestors didn't persecute. They even killed the ones who predicted the coming of the righteous one, the coming of Jesus, the Messiah, and now he's finger pointing, whom you betrayed, whom you murdered. Now remember, he is being brought on trial. And as you can imagine, this did not go over particularly well. In fact, this is what instigated his death. They shortly thereafter began to pick up rocks and throw them at Stephen, stoning him, throwing at rocks at him until he dies. Now, a wonderful little detail here is is given to us in, in the book of Acts, Acts for those of you that aren't familiar with this big book that we call the Bible. It's the fifth book in the New Testament which is kind of the second half of the Bible. Uh, The first four books of the New Testament are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Those are the four books that document Jesus' birth, his life, his death, and his resurrection. And then immediately preceding those is this book that we refer to as Acts which basically recounts the history of the early Christian church. And we're given this detail in Acts that as these rocks are being thrown at Stephen, as he is slowly dying on the ground, we are told this detail here in the seventh chapter, his accusers took off their coats, the accusers of Stephen, and laid them at the feet of a young man named Saul. And if you're not familiar with the history of the early Christian church, these are the types of details that you're just like, where did that come from? Like, why would they have included a detail like that? But this was Saul. Saul, who who would later become known as Paul. And and right here, a a fire, a fire is ignited within a young man named Saul. A a spark is turned into a flame. Saul, at this point in his life, he was studying to become a Pharisee. Uh, The Pharisees were a particular sect of Judaism that practiced this really, really strict adherence to the law. They, They tried to follow as closely as they could these 613 laws that were contained within the Jewish scriptures. And Saul, at this point in his life, I mean, he, he was a zealous man. He was like, I am going to be better at following these 613 laws than anyone who has ever stepped foot on the face of the earth. And, and Saul, after witnessing the death of Stephen right in front of his very eyes, he says to himself, now I have found the thing that I'm going to dedicate the rest of my life to. I, I am going to make it my life's work to make sure that Christianity does not outlast me. Because with the killing of Stephen, the murdering and the persecution of Christians, it became acceptable, and it even became encouraged. A couple of verses later, we're told that a great wave of persecution began that day, sparked by the killing of Stephen, sweeping over the church in Jerusalem. And all the believers except the apostles were scattered through the regions of Judea and Samaria. Saul said, now I have found that thing that I will dedicate My life too, but but check this out. And by the way, this literally has nothing to do with what we're talking about this morning, but I have like so much trouble just breezing by details like this and not at least bringing them to your attention. It is so worth noting. that This right here, what we just read, that the very thing that was supposed to crush this new movement, that the very thing that was supposed to kill Christianity, that was supposed to halt Christianity in its tracks, God would use that to spread the message of Jesus to spread the message of his son to the ends of the earth. Think about it. We owe we owe the spread of Jesus' message in the first century to the persecution of the Christian church. Think of the irony of that statement. It forced this small band of outlaws to spread out and not just make it this local Jewish thing but to make it an every one thing. Because God knew what we all know, that left to our own devices, we'll just gravitate towards what is comfortable. And they would have just stayed within the walls of Jerusalem. But because they were fleeing for their lives, it forced them to get out. And they soon found themselves among these Gentiles, these non-Jewish people, and they knew nothing about Jesus. And they're going, shoot, if we're out here, we might as well tell them about him. And they start telling all these people about Jesus. Every other movement in the history of the world that faced the level of persecution that the Christian church faced in the first century, it was killed. It was done. It did not make it out alive. Don't take my word for it. Go and read this stuff for yourself. The fact that Christianity survived the first century is unbelievable. If you are sitting here and you are skeptical of Christianity, you have to pay attention to this stuff. You cannot just dismiss it with this whimsical, oh, I guess they just got lucky. Back to Saul. Sorry. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison he went around and he was getting it done. Other translations rather than havoc they use the word ravage. Others say destroy. He was a type A personality and he was getting it done. If Saul stays on this war path that he has created for himself, I'm telling you, Christianity does not make it out of the first century. But God. But God had other plans. While Paul was on one of his trips to go and hunt down and arrest more Christians, specifically on his way to a city known as Damascus, which would sit in present-day Syria, he he has an encounter with the very God that he is persecuting people for putting their faith in. It says as he was approaching Damascus on this mission, a light from heaven suddenly shone down around him, like a blinding light, like the kind of light, like the other day I, I was in bed and... I make this weird noise from my bedroom when I wake up, so my kids know that I'm here. I wasn't planning on saying this. I go, "Coo, coo," and my my daughter's like ears perk up, and she goes busting through the door. When well, normally she jumps in bed and we like cuddle a little bit. For those of you who don't have kids, this sounds so weird, but I'm telling you, this is like a normal thing. And uh, she jumps in bed with me, but normally that's what she does. But this day in particular, she blasted the lights all on. Right? It was like still pitch black out, and she wanted to show me this dress that she had put on, and it was like I got shot. I was like, "Ah, ah!" And, like turn those back off. And so that kind of light, except even brighter glad I could distract all of you so well this morning. Okay. A light from heaven suddenly shone down around him. He fell to the ground and he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Again, think about this. Again, blinding light, can't see a thing. All of a sudden this voice, he doesn't know if it's a human voice. He doesn't know if it's a voice from heaven. And he asked the question, he says, who are you, Lord? And the voice replied, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. And the light fades away and Everybody else is rubbing their eyes, all the other people that are traveling with Saul, and Saul's rubbing his eyes, and he's rubbing his eyes, and he's rubbing his eyes, and his sight's not coming back. He's blind. And all the other guys are like, what in the heck just happened? These other men that are traveling with him and helping him and aiding him and arresting Christians, and he commands them to lead him into the city, into Damascus, and he goes into a synagogue, and for three days he tries to figure out what in the heck just happened to him. Little does he know there's another guy in the city by the name of Ananias, Ananias, who's who's a secret follower of Jesus, and Ananias has this vision where God comes to him and he says, hey, Ananias, uh, I I got a plan for you. Uh, There's a guy in the city right now named Saul. Have you heard of him? And he's like, yeah, I've heard of Saul. Where is he, right? Like, this is the guy going around hunting down and killing Christians. You go, okay, I know, Ananias, this is gonna sound a little bizarre to you, uh, but he's here, and I need you to go have a conversation with him. I I, I need you to, to go give him his new marching orders, And Ananias, as we would all suspect, is like, no, thank you. Like, again, this guy has a reputation that precedes himself. I don't want to get myself killed. And he's like, no, 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 Ananias, you don't understand. Everything's going to be okay. Go and have a conversation with Saul. And so Ananias reluctantly obeys. He goes and he finds Saul, and he says, Saul, I know this is going to sound crazy. God told me you're blind. You are blind right now. Uh, But no longer are you supposed to go around hunting down and killing Christians. In fact, now God actually wants you to spread his name. And I imagine he's like, goes back and flinches and waits to, like, be arrested, and when you know it, Saul actually listens, and Saul Saul receives this message, and just like that, Jesus takes the most outspoken voice against him, and he turns Saul to him. He gives him a new name. He says, you're not not Saul anymore. That's the old guy. That, That was the guy that was going around and hunting down Christians and hated me, I'm giving you a new, a new name. Your new name is now Paul, and you are going to be used as my instrument. I'm giving you a new mission for your life. No longer are you destroying my name. You're going to be my voice and spread my name to the ends of the earth. Now, now, now just thinking about this, i got to tell you, like, it gives me chills. I, I could talk about Paul and what happened on this day for like the rest of the year, and I don't think I'd run out of things to say. It's incredible how God throughout history, he, he uses the worst of the worst and, and takes those people and uses them as an instrument for his glory. But but remember, today, I, I haven't forgotten, we are supposed to be talking about baptism. Fast forward a little bit longer and, uh, and a little bit farther into Paul's life, and he's been doing a pretty good job. He's been going around and starting all these little ecclesias, all these little churches all over the place. He's spreading the name of Jesus all around the ancient Mediterranean world, and his adversaries finally catch up with him. The very men that he used to work alongside to hunt down and persecute and arrest Christians, they finally now caught the infamous Paul, from Saul to Paul. And when they do finally catch him, and he's on trial, and they're having this conversation, they ask him the question that's obviously begging to be asked, right? What the heck happened? How do you go from this guy who absolutely hates Christianity to now on the front lines going around telling everyone about Jesus? And he tells the tale of how the blinding light came and he was blind and then all these scales fell from my eyes and I regained my sight. And he even recounts for us the very conversation that he had between Ananias, the guy that came and had that conversation with him, and him. And he tells some of Ananias' words. Remember, this is Ananias' words to Paul. He says, The God of our ancestors has chosen you to know his will and to see the righteous one and hear him speak. For you are to be his witness, telling everyone what you have seen and everyone what you've heard. What are you waiting for? It's like very impatient, Ananias. Get up and be baptized. Have your sins washed away by calling on the name of the Lord. Now, I can't speak for you, but to me, this seems weird. It seems bizarre. It seems out of order. At least when I compare it with how baptism has been manipulated and practiced in the recent history of the church. I mean, think about it, just a couple of days earlier, Paul's running around and arresting and persecuting Christians, and now just because he has one interaction with Jesus, just one encounter with Jesus, just like that, he's about to get baptized. Now, maybe I'm living in a bubble, but that's not the pattern that at least I see among the followers of Jesus today. It's not the pattern I see here in our present time, and so For the rest of our time together, drawing from the life of Paul, drawing from what we see here from Paul, and by the way, this is the pattern that we see all throughout the New Testament. I can't really tell you why God specifically directed me towards this passage of Scripture as I was preparing the message this week, but this is what we see all throughout the New Testament, and I know that this subject, for some of you that are sitting here today, because of your faith roots, I recognize I can be stepping on some toes I recognize that this can be an emotional, that this can be a sensitive subject. And so I would challenge you, throughout the rest of this message, if you find yourself getting defensive, don't take my word for it. Go read this stuff for yourself. Go go, go read how baptism was practiced in the early church. Go, Go see what Jesus had to say about baptism. But again, drawn from the life of Paul, there's several truths that I'd like to point out, and in turn, some myths that I'd like to debunk. So here are five truths to know. Number one, you should not wait. You shouldn't wait. The the, the number one reason that I hear from people who proclaim to be followers of Jesus, but yet they have not taken that step to be publicly baptized as an adult. I I hear these things all the time, something along these lines. I just don't feel like I know enough yet. I don't feel good enough yet. I I don't think I'm ready yet. Holla back at me the next time you have one of those baptism services and we will see then you all, Jesus was so crystal clear on this. He said, believe and be baptized. That's it. Feeling not ready, feeling not good enough. It is not a disqualifier. It's a prerequisite. The only box that needs to be checked off before you are baptized, before you go public with your faith, is simply answering the question, have I put my faith in Jesus as my Lord and Savior? And if the answer to that question is yes, then you don't need anything else. Now listen, I I totally get it. I, I understand that the simplicity of this for us is difficult for us to wrap our heads around. That the most high God, again, would make the standards so simple. The way that he would say that you are righteous, that you are proved, it's not based on what you've done. It's not based on following these religious steps. No, 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 it's so much simpler than that. It's faith, it's, it's trust, it's belief. Do you believe that God sent his one and his only son down to earth to save you? To save you from that sin problem that you have no ability to solve yourself? That he died on a cross, God in the flesh died on a cross for you, for your sins, for your mistakes, but that he didn't stay dead. Three days later, he rose from the grave, and by acknowledging that, by putting your faith in Jesus, just like that, you get that right standing back. Just like that, that that relationship is healed. If you keep waiting for like this perfect moment, you're going to find yourself on your deathbed still waiting that perfect moment is not coming. For for some of you that that have been following Jesus for a while, you need to hear this. Part of this is just sheer obedience to something that Jesus very clearly asks you to do. It's taking to a certain extent a, a leap of faith. Maybe there's a reason they call it faith, trust, belief. If you're an adult and you've put your faith in Jesus, but you've never been publicly baptized, it's time to make it happen, because when good things happen in your life, you tell people about it, and usually you don't wait. You tell people right away. You see a good movie, you go and tell your friends about it. You start watching a great new show on Netflix, you go and you tell people about it. You get yourself a new dog, that new puppy, you tell people about it. In fact, you tell too many people about it. That's all we see on your Instagram and your Facebook feed for like a year. You get a new job, you tell people about it. If you believe that Jesus has saved you from the sin problem, that again, you have no ability to solve yourself, what is better news than that? It's better than a new dog. It is better than a great meal that you had. Use the platform of baptism to spread the word, to tell others, to tell friends and family, neighbors, coworkers, don't wait. Number two, you're not too far gone. This kind of goes hand in hand with the first point, but it's kind of worth belaboring. In Saul, we saw God use the worst of the worst to make his name known. But by a show of hands, have have any of you ever done anything worse than going around and hunting down and killing followers of Jesus? Anyone? Yeah, didn't think we'd see a lot of hands right there. Don't allow those feelings of inadequacy, don't allow the shame to back you into a corner. Uh, on the day that people are baptized here at Grumlaw, we, uh, we we make these like pallet wood-like things for them, like these little plaques. It's very Pinteresty of, of us. And uh, we put a piece of scripture on there. We put your name and, and the day that you were being baptized. And, and, and we challenge you to hang that in a place that you're gonna see it on a regular basis to kind of remind you, like, hey, that's the day where, where I really went public with my faith. That's the day where I truly jumped all in. And every single time we put the same piece of scripture on there, Uh, Probably not ironically, the, the piece of scripture we put on there is actually from a letter that Paul wrote, the same Paul we're talking about here today, to the early church in Corinth that he actually helped to start. He has these words. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, if you put your faith in Jesus, the new creation has come, the old is gone, the new is here. If you've put your faith in Jesus, God does not see you as a broken sinner anymore, He sees you as restored, bought back with the incredibly high price of his son. You have been rescued. You have been redeemed. Jesus already did the heavy lifting, so stop continuing to wallow around in your past. Stop wallowing around in your sin. Number three, baptism does not secure a place for you in heaven. I want to make this like really, really, really clear. Baptism is not about locking down a place for you in the afterlife. Jesus already covered that, in fact, at nauseum over and over and over again. It is your faith that accomplishes that. It's by putting your faith in Jesus and that alone. But unfortunately, throughout the course of history, religious men have let power go to their heads and have long led people to believe this lie. For many of you, it was a religious system or it was a religious man. By the way, no more special and no more anointed than you or me that convinced you that somehow pouring water on a baby's head would somehow determine where your child spends their afterlife. And if that's ever been your understanding, I'm sorry. That in no way, shape, or form lines up with the character of Jesus and those type of religious lies infuriate your heavenly Father. Baptism is not a condition of salvation. It's evidence of salvation. Again, if Jesus has transformed your life, why in the heck would you want to keep that stuff to yourself? Number four, baptism is a public declaration of an inward commitment. It's really that simple, so we won't belabor this point too much here. It's simply declaring to the world how Jesus has grabbed a hold of you, and now there's no chance you're going back. The, the the reason that we dunk people in water, it's not because that's water is like special. Nobody came by and like blessed the water. It's from the tap back here, and then we heat it up for you so it's not freezing. Uh, but it's simply a representation. It represents you washing away that old life. When you go into the water, you're leaving that old life behind. You, you're no longer saying, "Hey, I'm not going to be associated with those old mistakes anymore. I'm starting fresh." And you come out of the water, and it's a representation of things new, the new association that you ha- now have with Jesus. And then number five, lastly, God will use your story to help other stories be told. Um, I I know that what I'm about to say right here has the opportunity to sound a little bit harsh, but I really believe it's selfish for you to continue to keep this to yourself. You you have no idea who needs to hear your story. You, You have no idea how God wants to use your story to help others along in their faith journey. When we look at baptism, it's actually really, really simple to get so selfish to think, how's this going to affect me? What are other people going to think of me? Dare I say it, baptism really isn't about you. It's the story of how God rescued you from the sin problem you couldn't solve yourself and now making that known to the world. Publicly declaring that you now, first and foremost, associate yourself with Jesus and declaring your readiness to be used by him however he sees fit. Again, we look at the life of Paul. Look at how God used him. His story is so much more powerful because of what changed. It's why your story is powerful, whether you feel like it's dramatic or not. And again, I, I get that like all the time from people. They're like, I, I don't have anything to say. My life's not really that dramatic, and listen, I get it. We, we all have seen those stories, how like the former drug addict becomes a follower of Jesus. We've seen those stories of how the prostitutes suddenly put their faith in Jesus, and while those stories are powerful, I mean, at least for me and I think a lot of you, they're not that relatable. You're not listening to those going, man, that was my life. There's something really powerful about the average about the seemingly ordinary, the mundane, the story of the person that's just like, you know, I was chasing after the American dream. I was just going through the motions of life. I mean, there wasn't anything that bad, but there really wasn't anything that good, but there was just this void, and I tried to fill it with so much other stuff, and I, it all felt so empty, and so I started going to church, and then I really put my faith in Jesus, and man, like, my life is so much better now. That's powerful, People expect me to come up here and talk about how great Jesus is. I'm a pastor at a church. But when it comes to everyday, ordinary people like you, that speaks. That's relatable. That is undeniable evidence that God is working. Chances are that on your baptism date, and then subsequently on the date where your story is shown, more people will hear about what God has done in your life on those two days than the rest of your life combined. So what are you waiting for? If you put your faith in Jesus, take this next step. As you move closer to God, he will always, always move closer to you. You have no idea how God might want to use your story to help other stories be told.